Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. We continue this morning in our series examining the subject of stewardship and our task of serving as managers of what belongs to God. Today's theme will focus on God's endowment of responsibility given to each of his children to use the gifts he's given in service to his kingdom and to Christ's rule. We will see that the scriptures purposefully erase the artificial dividing line between work that is sacred and work that is secular. Thanks for listening. Well, as the dad in my home, I get to act like God. It's kind of like my little kingdom in my home. And I remember this was modeled for me by my father. And boy, let me tell you, when I was young, I sure loved it. That's sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. Um, One of the things that my dad would uh, often tell me, and invariably on a Saturday morning, Ryan, get your boots on. And I'd be like, Man, I just don't want to get my boots on at all. And so uh, the, the most predominant question to my dad's request to me was, why? <laughs> what, why do you want me to put my boots on? Let me tell you, my dad loved hearing that from me. Uh, that was a, I lost sarcasm this morning, but that, that was also sarcasm. Um, he, he really hated that because I was not asking why such that I would discern how I could better be his helper. I was trying to ask why so I could figure out a way of getting my, my way out of it. Um, and so uh, maybe you should pray for my son because it's no different for him today because now I get to be the dad. Uh, the other day, our garage door wasn't going up right, and uh, I had to tighten the springs on a garage door. Anybody who's ever done that knows that's quite a task to do. And so I said, Mike, get your boots on. And do you know what he did? He, no, he did it. He didn't ask why. He put his boots on. Now, I remember it's pretty demeaning as the son in this, as the helper, because all you're really doing, at least when I was with my dad, is I'm just handing him tools, and I'm listening to him complain. Uh, do you guys remember the Christmas uh, movie, A Christmas Story with Ralphie? You guys know what I'm talking about? I could never find any humor in the dad, but now that I am a dad, I totally get it. You know, with the furnace and all the... Anyways, so we're out in the garage, and there I am. Micah, hand me this and hold this. And he did a great job. He did a great job. Well, what's it like for us when it comes to obeying God? God asks you, hey, put your boots on. How do you respond? I think that this is, this is a place in our study of stewardship that's easily overlooked. Because when it comes to the mirror illustration of giving God ourselves as in worship to him, sometimes we're really good at doing that with lip service or even a Sunday morning. Like pretty many times, often, we're good at compartmentalizing our lives such that there is part of it that is sacred for God and the rest is secular that really belongs to us. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to kind of meddle into the full business of our lives under the subject of work. When God calls you, When God equips you, even if it's a task that you might not want to do, how do we respond? And then if we can get there, how might we even better learn how this is a gift from God? A gift that requires our cherishing and our stewardship. For he has given you such a time and an ability as right now. Are we, however, responsive to that? Or do we, like a crummy little teenager, like I did, say, well... I don't know if I want to. I kind of want to wiggle my way out of this. That's what we're going to look at this morning. 
As we're continuing in stewardship, I want to begin with a little bit of review from where we were last week. Firstly, identifying these three gifts of God, these endowments from our creator that you have been entrusted with. They, they really overlap as well. Time, money, and what is today? Help me out. Nobody knows. Work. Time. Let's say them together. Ready? Time, money, and work. Sounds like a fun Sunday morning study, doesn't it? We're just going to involve ourselves from God's word into all of our lives. This is what God has entrusted to you. And one of the, one of the primary problems that we have, I mentioned already, is starting maybe 100, maybe 200 years ago, this false categorization of our lives. Whereas you and I are able to compartmentalize things that belong to vocation and then things that belong to kind of volunteer work. Right? You, you, I, I have the part of my life that's career, and then I have the part of my life that's charity. And they're separate parts, and we tend to think of them that way. A compartmentalized, a schism that has happened in regards to the subject of work. Where on the one side, part of it is how we pay the bills, and on the other side is that which we might, if I have time, offer to God. This morning, we're going to try to um, dial it back to God's design and find out that is an artificial distinction. We need to erase that line that has divided our lives up. And what we really need to do is bring back under the single heading of sacredness our work. So that's part of what we're going to try to do. And then we're going to look into it as as to how we have been entrusted to this such that we are not owners of ourselves. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And so I have it as the tagline. It was part of a theme from last Sunday. A bit of a review. It's up here on the screen. We are managers of God's kingdom, not owners of ours. Amen? Amen. Can we say it together? Like a a responsive reading? You guys with me on this? Ready? Managers of God's kingdom, not owners of ours. And to begin with, ownership is the problem. That's the problem. I'm, I'm going to start with kind of some preliminaries this morning. Um, I have this in your sermon notes for you. But what are some of the errors that show up within ownership? Well, here's the first one that I've been even recently reminded of. Too often we try to defend our sense of ownership through human reasoning. Uh, whether that's offered to us either by this is what the news says or this is what society teaches. Remember that division of sacred and secular? That doesn't come from us. It certainly doesn't come from God. That comes from our society around us. Or even, and this one's probably the worst, my feelings. I just don't feel like it. I don't know if that really feels right. (sighs) You know what? We instead, towards maturity, need to become those types of Christians that obey when God says go, not because we think it feels right, but because who said it? God said it. That is it. That is all you need to know. Even if you don't feel good, you probably won't. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we're immature in our growth and in our faith. So yeah, it's many times not going to feel safe, not going to feel right. Not going to feel like it fits into what we have been um, so conformed into thinking of by the world standard. Yeah, it might not feel right. But if God says it, you can trust him. And so it's left for us, just like I was as a teenager with my father, it's left for us to simply obey. 
So it's not human reasoning. Rather, we need to submit to the authority of God's revelation. You know, this is a tough one for me as a pastor. My whole job when it comes to the word of God is to simply explain the text. That's it. I hope I model it through my own obedience, but I don't obey it for you. I can only lay it there and say, this is what God says. And then it's left up to who? Yeah, it's left up to us to do with it from there. You know how many times I hear, yeah, but what I think is blah, 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 blah. And I think, well, what am I doing then? I mean, if, if it's just what you think, what, what does it matter if I tell you this is what God says? Every line in here, I fall under its authority as well. So in every way in which it may be a challenge to you, it's a challenge to me. But we run ourselves into a very dangerous territory when we begin to defend our desire for lack of obedience because I'd rather own my own time or my own money or my own talents and so I'm going to use my own human reasoning to think, well, it doesn't really feel like that's right. Or I don't, what I think is X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. Danger. Danger. Do you know this showed up in the garden itself? Back in Genesis. Now, it wasn't the passage that we read. It's actually showing up in chapter 3. I'll just <coughs> recount the story for you, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. God says you can eat of all the trees except just you know why God did that? God put one tree. And where did he put it, by the way? Help me out. He didn't hide the thing, right? He didn't like stick it out on like just when you're going over there, watch out for that tree. He put the tree in the middle. And the reason God put the tree in the middle was so that the man and the woman would be reminded continually, none of this is mine. It's all whose? It's all God's. And he's the one that gave the instruction because it belongs to him and doesn't belong to me. That's why he put the tree in the middle. And then the serpent shows up and the serpent questions what God says and sows that little seed of doubt. And the text says that as Eve then leaves and looks at the tree, three things happen to her as she looks at it. She says, number one, it was desirable for food. Oh, good. Well, I probably fill my stomach, so it's, that can't be bad, right? Not a bad thing. It's good for food. Second, the text tells us she says it was pleasing to the eye. Ooh, made her feel kind of good, right? I mean, how could it be bad? It looks so good. That makes sense, right? If it looks good, if it feels good, it must be, help me out, <laughs> right? What are, what, are we, what are we relying on here? God's revelation or human what? Human reasoning. And then the last part, she says, it was desirous for gaining wisdom. Now, where'd she get that idea? When's the last time you ate an avocado and thought, I'm getting smarter? <laughs> no. She got that idea from Satan. That, that was foreign to her. You know what? That may be very similar to the world around us. 24-hour news cycle, whatever's showing across your internet news feed is piping information into you that's going to affect how you think. And you might eat, like Eve might think, yeah, God says not to do this, but you know what? It might not be that bad because it's desirous for whatever they're trying to convince you of. This is a problem. 
And the root of it then leaves us thinking we are in charge. But you're not the owner. None of what you have belongs to you. None of what you're gifted with belongs to you. Even the time with which you were born into this land, into the family you were, is foreordained by the wisdom of God for a purpose for which he is the owner. And so I feel like I'm a little bit preaching to the choir this morning on this because my hope is all of us here want to live off God's revelation as the authority and not human reasoning. That's why I'm taking notes. That's why I'm listening. But be very careful because when it really comes to push, push comes to shove, when it comes to ownership, you will be tempted to rely back upon what your society does and think, well, it's okay then. It must be okay because this is the way everybody does it. Number two, or oh, this, no, let me share with you this. Uh, where do we find it? The beginning of wisdom is not in the apple. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You put God first. You recognize that that's why the tree was in the middle of the garden. And so that we would honor God. We would fear God. We'd remember He owns it all, including myself. That is the beginning of wisdom. Number two, here's here's an error. Here's a problem when it comes to ownership. Concern and care and contribution. Like your, your ability to care for others, to be concerned about your neighbor, to be willing to contribute. They are bounded by the person who is an owner. And I'm including in here renter. Because truly, everything you own, you only own for a period of time, right? However, pay attention to this now. They are not bounded. They are not fenced in for the steward. Here's what I mean by this. If you own a business, whose bottom line are you concerned about? Not not theirs. Not theirs. Who am I concerned about? Mine. Because it's my business. When it comes to something as simple as even like your home, right? Whose children are you concerned about in your home? Mine. I don't care about them. There's there's someone else's problem. What about needs? When it comes to the need to either pay bills or whatever needs contribution, if you think you are the owner of it, you will have a box around your ability to contribute. And you would be unwilling to pass that anywhere else because I'm only concerned about what is mine. Additionally, you might treat those things in a way that doesn't seek to preserve or pass them on. Um, Do you ever drive a rental car from the airport? How well do you take care of those? Now be honest, you're in church now. Ain't mine, it's a rental. How about, uh, how about the uh, hotel room? A- any of you making the bed at the hotel room? Anybody vacuuming up after yourself in the hotel room? Anybody? <laughs> I saw one in back there. Sorry about that, Lee. We'll talk after. <laughs> oh, he makes it. Penny. We'll talk after. Oh, my goodness. Look, look if, if, this is just, if this is just mine to use how I want, what do I care? It's mine. I can do with it whatever I want to do with it. Time out. You're thinking like an owner thinks. You're not thinking like a steward. You see, if you saw yourself as one gear in a larger machine, that would change how you go about care and concern and contribution. 
If you and I learn to view our own lives as, as part of a larger system, we would be very different in how we're stewarding our lives, the treasures that we have, the time and the money and the talents that we have. Do you, everybody get this? Everybody understand the problem here? If you think like an owner, you only care about those things that you think you own. But if you think like a steward, now all of my desires for care, concern, and contribution, they actually level up to the actual owner who is the one who owns these things. Because if I think of myself as a steward, now my behavior and actions and values are going to flow from the values of the true owner and not what I think. Are you guys on board with this? Everybody catch this? This, this, is, a, this is a key principle. And it's significant because if you get this one, to see yourself as a steward, it will change how you think about the world. I actually believe this morning, church, that if you take serious the time that we spend in God's word together and give it a shot when we get to application to try to obey these things, I want to submit to you, it could change your whole life. It really could change every, every way that you think and interact with people. If you, if you gave it a try this morning, Because when it comes to the world, it all belongs to who? It belongs to God. Which means even your enemies are those who should belong to God. When it comes to sin in our lives, we think, oh, it's only my own little world. We don't think how infectious it is to those around us. If we begin to think like stewards, it will change our behavior our attitudes, how we approach missions to go to the lost. I wrote this down. I said, ownership is the source of refusal, refusal to give of your time, money, and talents. Ownership is the source of it. If you knew that there was an owner above you and that he has only temporarily entrusted to you the money that you have in the bank, the time that you have on the earth, and the talents that you've been given. He's entrusted you for that to serve him for a greater good. Can't you see how that changes your ability to care and to have concern and contribution to others? I'm thinking here in the garden in chapter four. We're spending a lot of time in Genesis, but do you remember as uh, Cain and Abel? We're going to look at that next week in a little bit more depth. But remember the situation? Cain kills his brother Abel, and God comes to Cain. And God says to Cain, where's your brother? What, what did Cain say? Do you remember? Am I my brother's keeper? How is Cain acting like? Like an owner or a steward? He's acting like it was just his. Why do I care about Cain? Or why do I care about Abel? What, what, am I his keeper? Why are you asking me where he is? I don't care about him. And so you can see very early how it's that mentality of ownership that causes us to lose the rewards of being invested in the world around us. And so today, uh, it's going to take effort for us to to position this theme of stewardship to the subject of work. And I want us to begin with giving us a, a definition of biblical work. When we're talking about work, what are we talking about? And you hopefully heard it as Lois shared at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> I think the text said that there was no man found to work the ground. And so what did God do? He made a farmer. <laughs> it's not like Paul Harvey. Some of you might get that. But he made, he made a man. 
And that man then was placed in the garden with the task that all of these things are belonging to God are being given for food. For you, Adam, you must work and care for that which belongs to me. That's what God said. And so let's dial back our lives. Let's go all the way back to there to see if we can position how we make sense of work. And this is the definition that I want to give you. Biblical work is the reconsecration of our energies, abilities, and opportunities under divine guidance and empowerment to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's kind of a long definition, three parts to it. The first has to do with reconsecration. Um, I I googled that word today. What does reconsecration mean? And the internet says it means consecration. (laughs) All right, I get it. Except I do think it is a re- Consecration, Because without the revelation of God's word, you've already devoted your work somewhere. Without giving thought to this, you will unintentionally devote your work most likely to idolatry, most likely to money. That's beyond far the majority of what we do unconsciously. And so what is biblical work? It's, it's re-consecrating those things. Consecration is a word that it's a combination of two. Con means with, and the root of it means that which is sacred. So to consecrate something means to put it with the sacred, to make it holy. That's what it means to re-consecrate what our energies. So that has to do with work, right? Abilities. This is what you do. And even opportunities, because you're going to get opportunities to work. All three of those dynamics in our lives, if we're going to follow a biblical model for work, we must bring together with the sacred. That's what it means to consecrate it. And then how do we do it? Well, under divine guidance. (laughs) I mean, for you and I to make sense of the stock market, for you and I to make sense of how to uh, operate within what the news cycle tells us, good luck. Whose help do we need? We need the direction from God. So let God be the one to direct your work. And then this word is even better, empowerment. How many times are you waking up in the morning, oh, geez, I've got to go to work again. (sighs) You and I need to find our source of strength from somewhere other than our own ability. And so it's both with God's direction and it's with God's enablement that we work for him. And in so doing, we both glorify God and enjoy God. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if your life became modeled by a work that you enjoyed? Do you know why you don't enjoy it? Because I don't get paid enough. No, that's not why. You think that's, that's not why. The reason you don't enjoy work is because of the curse. It's the curse of sin. In the garden, the work of the woman was cursed. As she works in her home, she's not going to trust her husband. As she raises her children, it's going to be filled with pain. As she rears and bears children. Her work is now frustrated. And the man, as he goes out of the home to work the earth and the ground, instead of crops, do you know what's going to produce? Thorns for him. And by the sweat of his brow, he's going to be exhausted. Work is going to bum you out. (laughs) That's because of sin in this life. You know what the good news is? Jesus came to pay the penalty of what? Sin. And so God offers to us a reconstitution that we can reconsecrate our work and actually enjoy it. 
that's where we're going to head this morning. And so that was a long opening introduction. We got like six minutes left, but we'll use it faster. Second Thessalonians, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Second Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter three. I'm going to read through this passage. See how when it comes to work, we are actually only managers of what God's given us, not owners of what God's given us. Three primary observations and then three applications for us to work through. Second Thessalonians chapter three. I still see some pages turning. If you're there, say amen. Amen. If you're still turning, say God help me. me. Yeah, a couple. No way. No problem. He will indeed. Second Thessalonians three, verse six, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you brothers to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and we urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread that they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. All right. The uh, primary model that we're given here uh, is to, to see one another as brothers and sisters. What's the dynamic, the institution under with which you call each other brothers and sisters? It's called the what? It's called family. That's right. It's called a family. So beginning there, the first observation I want you to see is that uh, the work is an identifying characteristic within God's family, within the community. And community is going to be kind of the primary lens by which we we look through this uh, observations for this passage. When it comes to God's family, work is a key identifying characteristic. Never should you be able to go to a church and be like, those people are so lazy. Man, those Christians, all they do is come to serve me, do this for me, help me, those Christians. Never should that be said. Every time you run into Christians, it should be, wow, those are the hardest working people I ever met. Christians, they serve like there's no tomorrow. They're serving everybody, even their enemies. It's a key characteristic of the family of God, of the community. I want you to see how Paul relates this. If you remember from our Ephesians study, he says, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting living, it grows and it builds itself up as what? As each one does its work. That means that you have a role to play in the body. And if you don't have a role to play, this might be frightening, 
you might not be part of the body. Right? What, what part of your body does not serve the whole body? Only the parts that you clip off with the fingernail clipper, right? Those don't serve anymore. Everything else that's connected, it serves to help the body grow. It's an identifying feature. It, I, every year I do a sermon on work. Every year. And so I kind of even went back just to see where we've been on this. It is not a subtle theme in the New Testament. Look just in the book of Titus. Paul says, he who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify himself, a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. 3 verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready to do whatever's good. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everybody. In 3 verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. I, I, I'm tempted to just rush through this, but look at that last line. You get a why statement. Why? Why do I need to work? So that you can help others. Provide for the needs of others. And not be unproductive. Which leads to the second observation from this passage. Work is commanded because of the family. Everybody's got a role to play. In my house, uh, every one of us has a role to play. My kids all have jobs. They have duties, chores that are commensurate with their ability, right? So we don't have Sadie running the snowblower, but Muscle's over here. He can do it, right? So what's Sadie get to do? Well, she gets to feed and water the dogs. That's part of her job. Cleaning up the cushions in the living room, tidying up. That's part of her job because everybody has a role to play. And what happens when we do this, right, belonging to a family, is we will be able to help one another. It's such a big help. You guys know the phrase, right? Nick and Corianne are going to see it today at their house. Many hands make light work. Why does this matter? Because you belong to a family. Look with me back into the text here. It says in verse 8, we work night and day, laboring and toiling. Why? You have another purpose phrase here. So that what? Do you see it? so that we wouldn't be a burden on anyone. We're not trying to wear you out. We're not trying to overstress anybody. Have you ever felt that way at work? I'm sorry, you must not have heard me. Have you ever felt stressed at work? You got an amen from somebody. Yeah, yeah. Here's a scarier question. Have you ever felt that way in the church? When it comes to serving here? When it comes to late nights? Uh, I was talking with a friend earlier. says, nobody sees what I do. Nobody, nobody's ever thanked me for what I do. Ooh, church, we got to be careful. Because why is work designed for us? You, because you belong to a family. You belong to a community. And so your contribution is not a product of some false sense of ownership. It's because God owns this. It belongs to him. And just like my kids all have a role to play, you have a role to play as a child of God. Look at this verse out of Ephesians again. Paul says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Seems like that's pretty simple, right? But you must work. Doing something useful with their hands. Here's another purpose phrase. So that what? That they may have something to share with those in need. Next Sunday, we get to do our food ministry collection, right? Everybody contributes. And if you don't contribute, maybe nobody will get any food. Because everybody brings a little, and by bringing a little, we're able to give a lot. Now, I want you to know this. 
that as I and others have opportunity to give food to help others who need it, not a single one of them stands there and says, it was about time you brought me food today. Not a single one does that. Do you know instead what I found? They actually try to find a way to give back to the church. Of those that we have ability to help, they themselves, even though it might not be monetarily, even though it might not be in the same way you have the ability to serve, they find a way to serve. That's worth an amen, isn't it? Amen. That's awesome. All right. So work is an identifying characteristic within God's community. Work is commanded because we are in God's community. And then lastly, work is corrected in God's community as the right expression of our faith. This from James 3. James says, who's wise in understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. By deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. All of us have entered into the faith with a goofed up picture of work. All of us have come into this thing at some point or the other thinking that work is supposed to be laborious. Why? Well, because you've grown up under sin that way. That's not how God's designed it to be. That's not the picture for which God wants you to continue serving the Lord and working. He wants to correct it. Change how you think about work. Author Dorothy Sayers has this quote, which I love. She says, work is not primarily a thing that one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. How cool is that? Boy, I just can't wait to work today. I can't wait to serve. Some of you right now are thinking, nope, not me, not my job. Uh, Okay, this is the big one for you then. Because God's design for work is so that we change how we look at it and approach it. We need a correction of our understanding of work and what it means for us. That we don't get up in the morning and say, fine, I got to. But instead, we erase the line of the secularism of work, the sacredness of church. And watch this. We come to learn that all work can also be worship. That's going to be a major theme when we return to this Subject of work in a couple of weeks. But here's just very simply what I want you to know. Do you know what we need in the church? We need less preachers. We need less office staff. We need less full-time missionaries. Now, you might hear that and think, boy, does that sound backwards to the way I understand the Bible. Give me a second to explain it. Do you know instead what we need? We need those who go out into the workplace and in your going, you're obeying God's command to make disciples. Not being a, let me pick on, who can I pick on? Uh, I'm afraid to pick on anybody this morning here. (laughs) Jacob, I'll pick on you in the back. What what is it that you do? Just shout it out for the church. Programming. Programming. All right. So he's, he's he's a programmer. What I wouldn't want is for Jacob to say, I'm a programmer who's also a Christian. That's not the right view. We need to correct that. Because what you're doing is you're actually making what you think is a secular profession the primary identifying feature of your life. I'm a programmer, and then I'm going to take the cross, I'm going to take some Jesus with me, and I'm just going to put it, little, sprinkle it in. A little bit of Jesus in a programmer. So I'm a programmer who's a Christian. That's not... That's not, I don't, I don't think, what the scripture would want us to see. Instead, can you tell what I'm going to do here? I'm not a programmer who's a Christian. Instead, I am a 
Christian programmer. That's what we need in the church. So whatever your job is, whatever you do, here's the challenge. I'm, I'm actually getting into some application on this, but that we would reverse the order of that so that you put the identifying qualifier of Christian in front of your job that then permeates and changes the entire job. This is what I am. I'm a Christian who also goes to work, fill in the blank, does whatever you do in your life. That's what we need more of. And when you do that, you will be a missionary everywhere you go. It's the professionalization of the faith that we have that has skewed this idea that there's really two categories in church. The clergy, right? right? Those of us who are full-time that get paid, and then everybody else. That's artificial. God wants to correct how we think of work so that it, it, our work, our vocation, your career, it actually becomes an expression of our faith. Now, I hope you can see that here from this text. It shows up everywhere here. Just one verse for you to see it. Verse 13, he says, as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. He's saying that in the category of all of their work, that even which you do to earn bread, From Paul in the New Testament's perspective, by virtue of Jesus dying on the cross to do away with the curse of sin in work, you can now bring your work under the cover, reconsecrated as worship, as holy and as sacred. So what do we do with this this morning? Um, I want to offer you three ways for you to be a steward of your work. Number one, put God first. You are not the owner He is the owner, therefore put him first. I think of this story, I think we looked at this and we'll study in depth when we get there. Uh, The parable of Matthew of the guy who builds the bigger barns. Do you remember that guy, right? So he stopped working. Why? Because he thought he owned it all. It wasn't his. He didn't own it. God actually owns it. And so stopping the work was a consequence of a misplacement of ownership because he didn't put God first. He put himself first. I looked back at a previous message I gave out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you guys remember our study with that? Hevel. Uh, That's the key word in Hebrew there that means vanity or meaninglessness or vapor. Like everything I try to do, it's just sand slipping through my fingers. I just can't capture it. Do you remember that? We did it. We did a specific study on the subject of work in Ecclesiastes. And this is what I wrote down. I want to share it with you. Um, We said that without God, and that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing. He's looking at work without God. I'm just not going to look at God. Do you know what you get without God? Here you go. Number one, my work will lead to despair. If you've ever felt that before, it may be because you're not bringing God with you. Number two, my work has no return for my effort. Number three, my work never leads to rest. Number four, my work is only mechanical. Number five, my work is a temporary achievement. And number six, my work is all for me and I become God. Yikes. That's what you and I risk if we don't get this one right. How incredible would it be if for you, when you woke up Monday morning, you said, not only as we studied last week, God, I give you this day, but God, I give you this project. That thing on my calendar that the boss has been telling me to do, I'm not doing it for my boss anymore. Who am I going to do it for? I'm going to do it for God. I, I, I consecrate my work by putting God first. 
How awesome would that be if you brought God with you when you uh, crawl, crawl under the car to work as a mechanic or, or fire up the chainsaw or get out a new box of clean diapers or preparing your lesson for your students? Whatever your job is, how awesome would that be if at the start of your day you said, God, I give this to you now. I give this project to you. I love this from Psalm 90. The prayer is, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. You, is inserted there, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, you, God, establish the work of our hands. This is the person that before they put their boots on, they have asked God to bless their work and they're doing it because they put God first. Number two, you and I need to learn to find our role in the community. I was telling you earlier of how even those that we serve here find a way to give back. And their role looks different than yours, but here's the cool part. They still have a role. Everybody has a role to play. This from Paul in Romans 12, he says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members don't all have the same function. So in Christ, though many form one body, yet each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. Teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. What's he saying? Whatever your role is, what should you do? I'm, what's, what's the Nike phrase? Just, yeah, just do it. And do it by putting God first. And you have a role to play. I fear I fear that maybe some of us in here still really haven't found where that falls within the body of God. This might be the application for you then, that for you, this is what I need to begin at. But it's not just serving inside the church. We need Christian plumbers. We need Christian teachers. We need Christian dentists and snowplowists and farmers and loggers. I may be missing you, but you get the point, right? Take that word Christian and let that be the defining feature of your vocation so that your work is not separated from God, but reconsecrated to God. All right, I'm repeating myself there. Lastly is this. Embrace God's command to work in the community as an example to those who are still needing encouragement, maturity, and conviction that they too would be part of this. You know what the worst thing you can do is? The worst thing you can do is cross your arms and complain about them. That person never helps. That person's always taking that per blah blah. Hey, you're not helping. That's not helpful. What does Paul do here? Did you see what he did for the church in Thessalonica? There were some busybodies in Thessalonica. You guys know what a busybody is, right? What's happening over there? What are they doing? What are they saying? Just get, mind your own business. Do your own work, right? Paul says he didn't come to them nagging or complaining about them. Instead, he simply worked. And he said, my life is a model. My life is an example. Do, do what I'm doing. And this is God's design to help us to grow together as a family. And I want you to know that number one reach for this. Do you know who they are? They're our kids. 
I don't think there's ever been a generation that has been so misplaced on priorities to know how to work. Am I right? They're, they're not going to learn that by you complaining. Do you know how they're going to learn it? Ryan, get your boots on. That's how they're going to learn. That we model for the next generation what work looks like. If we were to do these, church, if, if you were to take this seriously, you will be stewarding. You will be being a manager of the wonderful endowment of God's grace to give you really special talents and abilities, energies, desires, and work. You will steward it by being able to pass it on to the next generation, by being able to give God all the glory and honor, and by becoming a full member participating in this body to the glory of God. Amen.